Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Let me back up and read, uh, beginning in verse 14. And it says this, hear the word of the Lord. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It's been a few years now since I dropped off our second daughter at her university, which is just up the street from here, Palm Beach Atlantic University. And it's in downtown West Palm Beach. And as we were going around and trying to get her settled in the mailbox and the dormitory and the books and all this, I looked across Dixie Highway and I saw that right across from Palm Beach Atlantic, there is a cemetery. And uh, I looked at the cemetery, and it has an iron gate over the entrance to the cemetery. And there's a, a saying there on that iron gate over the cemetery. And it says this, 
something as universal as death must be a blessing. Now, I I appreciate their effort to provide some sort of comfort to the people who were driving through that gate because the people who drive through that gate are people who have lost somebody. And they're grieving people. And so they're trying to make an effort to comfort. But as I read that, I thought this is a clear and almost literal example of whistling past the graveyard. Just going past the graveyard saying, this must be a good thing. I mean, there's so many people here, and everybody's eventually going to be here, so it must be a good thing, right? Can we agree on that? And so it it seems like a perhaps noble, kind attempt, but a, a superficial attempt to deal with the universality of our mortality. Now, what we have here in Athens is an interesting situation because Paul gets to preach to people who were doing, in some ways, more sophisticated than that iron gate, perhaps, but doing something like the same thing, trying to deal what all humanity has to deal with, and that is the limited nature of our time on earth, our own mortality. And he had an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. So we're going to listen to Paul preaching to these people in Athens. Now the context is this. Athens had been the glory of Greece, and it had been the cradle of both philosophy and democracy. But under Roman rule, it was no longer politically important. It continued, however, to be a very important intellectual center. We might think of our own city of Boston. When you think of Boston, you don't think about power broker in in, in the political realm anymore, although it used to be at the beginning of our country. But what do you think about Boston? You think about the amazing universities and the the hospitals and the the culture that's there. So it is an intellectual center. That's what Athens was. And Paul wasn't planning to be there. He did not consider Athens to be part of his strategic plan. He was there because he got run out of the last place he had been, which was somewhat typical for Paul. He had just gotten run out of a few different places, and he'd just gotten run out of Berea. And so he went from Berea to Athens, and there in Athens he was just waiting. He was waiting for his friends to show up. But Paul, being Paul wasn't just going to visit the the museums and uh, take it easy. Paul engaged people in conversation. He engaged anybody who would listen to him. And he found three different groups to talk to. Uh, One group was kind of Paul's home territory. It was the Jews. And he knew how to talk to the Jews. How did he talk to the Jews? Well, he would just open up the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he would reason from the Scriptures with them about Jesus being the Messiah. And then he also found God-fearing Gentiles, which he could speak to them basically the same way as the Jews, because they were believers in what we call the Old Testament, but they had not yet taken the step of becoming Jews. But then he ran into a different sort of character, and these were the philosophers. And they heard him talking in the streets with people in the, in the marketplace. And they were trying to listen to what he was saying, and they called him, some of them, a scrap picker, a scrap picker. It's translated here, a babbler. 
but they're accusing him of being one of those kind of guys that just picks up different scraps here and there and, and goes on and babbles about them. But what they did was, they said, well, we like to hear new things, right? That's what it says in verse 21. What do the people in Athens do, the Athenians? Verse 21 says, the only thing they like to do is to spend all their time telling and hearing something new. So it might have been pieces of scraps, but hey, it was new. He was talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and they, they didn't know what that was about, but it was new to their ears. And so what they did is they went to Paul, and they more or less compelled him to go to court. Now, it wasn't a, a legal court. It was an intellectual court, and it was the Areopagus It was a forum, a public forum, where they could evaluate ideas. And they said, Paul, you're you're saying strange things. It sounds like you're just talking, you're babbling, but it's new for us. Come and talk to us more about it. What an opportunity for Paul. And so Paul gets to go to the Areopagus, and he gets to speak to these philosophers. And it says that there were two types of philosophers. There were Epicurean philosophers, and there were Stoic philosophers. Now, who were these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Well, the Epicureans believed in atoms. Atoms. They thought the only thing that exists are atoms. Now, we know now that atoms are not atoms because atom, the word means indivisible. Well, now we've divided it and we know they're smaller particles. But the point is this. They were materialists. That is, they believed that the only thing that exists is matter. That's it. Matter is the only thing that exists. They didn't really have much time for gods. And they thought, if there are any gods out there, they certainly aren't concerned about us. And in that sense, they're, they're, they were similar to what we would call deists. Who, maybe there's a god, maybe there's not, but he's certainly not concerned about us, so we don't need to worry about him. Uh, they lived to maximize pleasure. So they are known as pleasure-seeking philosophers, but they were astute about their maximization of pleasure because they realized that if you went too far in pleasure, you would have pain. So they were about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. So their whole approach to life was try to do things in moderation, seek pleasure, but do it in moderation uh, because if you don't do it in moderation, that pleasure will turn into pain and now you've gone too far. So they were, they were, maybe we could say their motto of life would be something like, have a good one, but drink responsibly. Some mottos that we have today, right? And that's sort of what they were about. Uh, living moderately in order to maximize pleasure. Because, after all, what is the universe? It's this stuff. And what are we? We're, that's all we are too. We're just made up of particles, and that's it. Now the Stoics were different. The Stoics believed in providence. That is, they believed in God's will. They believed that there was was divine presence in the universe, but then they conflated the universe with God. They believed that God was the universe and the universe was God. So they weren't like the, the Epicureans who just thought the universe was just particles, atoms. They thought the universe had a spiritual nature to it but it was identical to God. And that's what we call pantheists, that everything is God. And uh, they weren't so sure um, about uh, things like eternity and what would happen then, but they said what we need to do is not seek pleasure, 
but to seek virtue, to seek virtue in life. And so what we need to do is align ourselves with the universe and the rules of the universe, because the universe is God and God is the universe. And if we will align ourselves with the virtues that are inherent in the universe, then we will be happy. So their, their motto would be something like, find happiness by doing what's right. And they uh, emphasized, they emphasized practicing virtue and, and courage and honesty and so on uh, whenever we could because that's the only true source of happiness. Now, these two groups are still with us, although they don't call themselves Epicureans and they don't call themselves Stoics, probably. But let's think about these two categories because this is not irrelevant preaching to them. We'll find that this is preaching that really gets to us today. There are those who call themselves materialists today. And for some Strange reason, it's often associated with the hard sciences. Now, this is not something that the sciences can conclude. This is a philosophical or religious position, but there are scientists who think that this is the scientific position. It's not, because this is not in the realm of science. They work with atoms, and they work with matter, but they can't say scientifically that that's all there is. But there are materialists, and I've met some, who say, this is all there is, they're just particles. We don't know how small those particles get, we don't understand all the forces that hang them together, but that's all there is, just matter. Um, and they're also, much like the Epicureans, atheists don't believe that there's anything divine out there. And they're also, perhaps more, the Stoics, who are just saying, well, I believe in God, and God is kind of everywhere, and God is kind of everything, and everything is God, and I just want to live in union with Him. We might think about kind of New Agey ideas and uh, uh, spiritualism, and so we have... We have materialists on one hand, and we have spiritualists on the other. And these two groups, we have to give them credit, because they were both trying to do, in a philosophical way, what every human being is trying to do. What were they trying to do? Uh, They were trying to make the best of life and find happiness. And as far as I can tell, that's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to figure it out, and we're all trying to figure out what it's about, and we're trying to find happiness in this life. And we're trying to tie that happiness to something something bigger than ourselves. I told the story once, I think it was the one of the first sermons I preached in this church, but most of you weren't there, so I will do uh, do what I know, don't normally do and retell illustrations, but I was at our, our townhouse condominium complex, and uh, we don't have water meters. I guess that's how they did it in the 70s. So we all divide up the water. So there's not a real great incentive to, to economize because, hey, I just pay 188th of it. So uh, we all divide it up. So all the water in the condominium complex, we all divide it and uh, pay 188th of all of it for the watering, the pool, the, the showering, everything. Um, well, it was a lady who lived next to us, and her grandkids would sometime come and play. And they would make a lot of noise, which was great, because our condominium was really quiet. Yeah. Really quiet. And whenever there are kids around, I'm looking out and saying, yes, please, make noise. It's great to hear the voices of kids. But uh, one of the kids got a hold of a hose. And he was maybe, I don't know, 8, 10 years old. I mean, look at this. Boy with a hose uh, in a parking lot. And so he, he cranked that hose open, and he was spraying that everywhere, spraying it up into the sky, and he was letting it fall down on him and running around and dancing and having the time of his life. And I was enjoying that with him up to a point, but then I started calculating, divided by 88, and started thinking, you know, all of that water that he's just spraying into the air, 
to evaporate, I'm paying for an 88th of it, and hey, the aquifer, you know, we need to respect the aquifer. So I was coming up with some, some ecological and economic reasons to say, hey, you know, maybe you could turn that off. You've had your fun, you can turn that off. But then he stopped me in my tracks. Because as he was spraying and dancing and yelling, he started saying this, I feel so alive. I've never heard that from a eight or ten year old. I thought they always felt that way. And he just kept spraying and he kept yelling, I feel so alive. And I thought, go for it. That's what we're all trying to do, isn't it? That's what we're all looking for. And that's what these philosophers were looking for. That's what that little boy was looking for. That's what you and I are looking for. So let's see. Let's see what Paul has to say to us. He begins his sermon in a very astute way. He said, you know, I I recognize that you are very religious people. Congratulations for that spirituality. But I was walking along and I saw an altar and it said, to an unknown God. And so no matter how religious you might be, you yourselves recognize that you don't know God. That you don't know everything there is to know about God. So I am here to tell you about that God that you yourselves confess that you really don't know. A very tactful, very polite, but very powerful way to start his sermon uh, in verses 22 and 23. And then in verses 24 to 28, Paul went on to do something equally astute. He went on to preach from the book of Genesis, basically. Preach from the book of Genesis without mentioning Genesis. Why wouldn't he mention Genesis? They didn't know about Genesis. And it wouldn't be an authority for them anyway. So what Paul did here is he took biblical truth about God and about humans, and he used local language. He used language that they themselves could understand. And not only did he use local language, but he went so far as to quote some of their, their famous authors in order to back up some of his ideas and at least not back them up so much because he already had the biblical authority, but to, to, to build a bridge of understanding with them. And what did he, what did he do? Um, by the way, this is what we're called on to do. This is what we're called on to do wherever we might be in the world to take the message of the Bible and to speak it in language that people can understand using illustrations that have force for them and also with appeals that that get to their hearts. That's what we're about. Sometimes we Christians are satisfied with speaking insider language and we all get it. We all understand the language, the biblical language, the theological language, the Christian language. But we're called on to take this message and take it to the world and we need to figure out how to speak it to the people that are walking by today. The people that live in our neighborhoods, our family members, our friends. We need to figure out how that we can speak this message in language, in illustrations, and in appeals that get to their hearts under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what did he declare? He declared in verses 24 to 26 that God is the independent and sovereign creator who is involved in the world. Let's look at these verses again. Verses 24 and following. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So that's Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? And this is going against what these philosophers would have believed. Because the Stoics believe that God was the world, and he says, no, God made the world, and the world is different from him. And the Epicureans were saying, well, there may be a God, but he's not concerned with us. And he says, on the contrary, he made us, and he, then he goes on to say, set the boundaries and the, uh, of our existence. So he's very much involved. And then he goes on to say that humanity, humanity in verse 26, is united in that we descended from one person. Does this sound familiar? Here we have Genesis uh, 1, 2, 3. And uh, in addition, we have some relationship to God. So verse 26, he says, And he made from one man, doesn't give his name, because that name wouldn't have meant anything to them, one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here it's biblical uh, biblical instruction about who God is. He's the sovereign, independent, involved creator and who we are, that we are uh, made in His image. We are made to be like Him and we are all related one to another. Now that would have cut out the rug of, of the uh, Athenian uh, racial superiority. Like, like, like all groups, they were, they were racist. Like every group that's ever existed considers itself better to other groups. And the Athenians, being the, the intellectuals, they consider themselves to be uh, better than many other groups. And here Paul is saying, guess what? You are related to everyone else. Those barbarians that you despise so much, uh, that you're related to them as well. Now, um, he says, the, the upshot of this is that we should seek God because he is accessible, verses 27 and 28, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And here's where he brings in their own poets. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, That was uh, Epimenides of Crete that said that. Uh, And then uh, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That was a quotation from Aratus, Erastus, one of the, the ones that they would have read. So he's saying, you all recognize, you all recognize that we have some relationship to God, that we look like God in some sense, and so he is near to us and we should seek him. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics conveniently had done their system so that they didn't have to seek God. Why? Well, Epicureans, what God? It's just, it's just matter. If there's a God out there somewhere, it has nothing to do with us, so why it doesn't make sense to seek Him? Uh, also, the Stoics. Well, if everything is God, and God is everything, then why seek Him? I mean, he's already here, and we're already part of Him, and He's already part of us. And Paul is saying no. So here, understand what he's doing here. doesn't quote Scripture, but he presents a biblical view of reality, God, independent, creator, involved, knowable, accessible, humanity, descended from Him in some sense, uh, made to look like Him, to relate to Him. So what's the, what's the application? That we should know Him, that we should seek Him, that we should find Him. And then finally, he made a straightforward appeal, beginning in verse 29. 
He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This sounds very much like what happens in the the prophets in the Old Testament, where they explode the absurdity of idolatry. And he does it based on their own idea. He says, now wait a minute, you all have a city that is full of idols. But you yourselves, according to your own poets, say that we are God's offspring. So if we are going to look at what God looks like, what resembles God, would we find that in stone? Would we find that in carved gold or silver? No. God has made us to show what He looks like. So idolatry is is absurd. So he explodes their idolatry in one sentence using what they already have said they believe. And then he says, um, he goes on to say, God's been tolerant of this. God has been tolerant of this for a time. By the way, we, we think of idolatry as this kind of idolatry. We think about things that we've seen in National Geographic or something, or maybe we've traveled uh, to places and we've seen carved images and idols and people are carrying them around and bowing down to them. And we look at that and we say, how crass is that? And we say, they have idols. But we need to recognize that they're not the only ones who have idols. Because what's an idol? An idol is anything, any created thing that we put as a higher priority than God. And so if that's what an idol is, guess what, folks? They're not the only ones who have idols. We're all tempted to put other things in place of God, give value to other things above God, to give priority to other things other than God. That's idolatry. And he says, God has tolerated this. He's tolerated this. But the time has come, the hour has come for us to turn from false ideas about God and turn from our idolatries. Look at, uh, look at verse 30. It says here, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. This was completely out of the realm of what these philosophers believed. He was saying, No, uh, we're, not just, we're not just matter, And we're not just, in some vague sense, part of God and God part of us. God is the one who made us. We have turned aside into idolatry. And God has fixed a day when He will judge idolatry. So it's time to turn away from that idolatry and turn to the true God. And He said He's appointed a man for that day of judgment. A man will preside in that day of judgment. And then He comes to the climax of His sermon... And now you'll see, perhaps, finally, why I picked it for today. Verse 31, Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. By raising Him from the dead. That's the assurance. That's the demonstration. And if we think about that, if we have our tidy universe... That is, uh, it's only made of matter. Uh, Or we have our universe in which it's just a a vague identification with God. The resurrection from the dead sort of breaks into that. It interrupts things. It, it, 
it, it, it points to something beyond the grave, that there is something beyond death. And that if there's something beyond death, then maybe I need to think about that while I'm still alive here. So this resurrection from the dead is a paradigm-changing sort of thing. It, 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 it changes the worldview. It, it, it interrupts uh, our tidy lives and says, no, there's a man that's been appointed. And that man is risen from the dead. And that man is the one that you will encounter when you stand before God. Now, what was the reaction to this? Some people thought this was hilarious. And that hasn't changed, has it? Many people think this is hilarious for a number of reasons. They just say, well, I've never seen anything like that, so that can't happen. They thought it was hilarious because the materialists, well, they just thought death, that was the end, and we just are extinct. And the Stoics, uh, they thought that was hilarious because there was no need for interruption like that because God is the universe and the universe is God. Some mocked, as some mock today. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, one of them, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is remarkable. Paul basically got laughed off the stage here. But his sermon was a resounding success. Why? Because some people believed. That's the way to judge whether, whether a sermon is a success or not. Did anybody believe? Did one person believe? Then that's a resounding success. Now, Paul left it with judgment by a man who had risen from the dead. And he, he left it so that those who wanted to hear more would say, now tell us more about this man. And no doubt Paul went on to tell about this man. And what would Paul have told them about this man whom God had risen from the dead? He would have gone on like he did everywhere and explained that this man is named Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and that he became one of us, a human like us, that he lived an absolutely perfect life. He did not fall into idolatry. And then at the end of that life, he was crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then God raised him from the dead to give eternal life to all who will believe in him. So this is the message. This is the message that Paul would have given them after this this introductory course on God and humanity at the Areopagus. And this is the gospel message, isn't it? How's it go? It has to do with God. It has to do with humanity. It has to do with Jesus. And it has to do with our response. God, creator of all things, made us in his image. Humans turned aside into idolatry uh, and therefore liable to God's judgment. Christ, God's son, who came to save us from our idolatry and the consequence thereof, to give us eternal life, forgiveness of our sins by living, by dying, by rising from the dead, and then the response. And we've seen the response already. Paul said, repent, repent, and believe the gospel. You see, the gospel is not a command to do something. It's a declaration of what has already been done. And so we encounter the gospel as the message of God of what he did to rescue us from our state of sin and death and judgment.
Now, um, some people believe that day, and you can too. Some people turn from idolatries, and you can as well, and receive this, this salvation that God came to bring. And if you do, um, the terror of the day of judgment is taken away. Yes, it's true that all of us will one day stand before God. And yes, it's true that on that day, the, the presider there will be Jesus because he raised him from the dead. But uh, what's also true is if you put your faith in Jesus, that on the day of judgment, he will not simply be the judge, but he will be the Savior. And that's very convenient, isn't it? That's very comforting, isn't it? That the one before whom we have to stand is the one who came and lived and died and rose. Mike gave me permission to tell this story. Thank you, Mike. One day Mike had to go and stand before a judge. I don't know if any of you have had to do that. Uh, It's kind of a frightening thing. I had to do that once in traffic court. I don't know, I don't remember why Mike had to do that. You might want to ask him later about that. But Mike had to stand before the judge. Um, Mike's dad was uh, a well-known attorney in town. And so, as Mike was going up toward the bench, the judge leaned forward and said, Hey, Mike, how's your father? Now, that was a great comfort to Mike. Why? Who was the judge? A friend of his dad. It can't get any better than this. A friend of his dad. I mean, how much more could you ask for? He could have had another judge. But he had a judge who was a friend of his dad. And if you trust in Christ, it gets actually even better than that. Because when you approach the judge, you will find that his son is the one who is representing you. He's the one that will say, I'll vouch for this one. This one is mine. I've taken care of everything he did, everything she did. Yes, yes, guilty is charged. But the guilt has been paid. The penalty has been paid. There is no more judgment to be meted out. Why? Because I have taken it all upon myself. You see, that's the good news, isn't it? Yes, the day of judgment, it's coming. Yes, we have to die. But on that great day, on that great day when each of us stands before God and He asks us to give an account for our lives, we have a couple of options. One of those options is to say, well, I did this, or I did that, or I tried hard, or I was better than this guy or that guy. The other option is to say, Your Honor, I have nothing to plead in my own defense except Jesus, who lived and died and rose for me. And He is my plea And my only plea. And the verdict on that great day, if that is your case, will be declared innocent because of the innocence of the Son. That's the good news. And that's the good news those materialists and spiritualists heard that day. That's the good news that we get to hear today. And that is in contrast to the iron gate, isn't it? The iron gate is just a sort of, let's try not to think very hard about death. Let's try to pretend that since it's such a universal thing, we'll just try to pretend that it's a good thing and hope for the best. 
Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity looks at death and says, this is a terrible thing. And it's a terrible thing that's come into the world because of our sin and our idolatry, but God has taken care of it. And death will not have the last word. Death will not triumph. On the contrary, the fact that this man whom God appointed has risen from the dead means that all who are in him will rise as well. Well, that's good news for the day we die. And that's good news for the day of judgment, isn't it? But it's also good news for every moment of every day from now until then. That Christ was born, that Christ lived, that Christ died, and that Christ has risen from the dead. And that He is ours if we (coughs) believe in Him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this sermon long ago and that some people believed it. And I pray that You would give belief to all of us, faith to believe this message, that we might not stand before You naked in our idolatries, but rather that we might stand before You clothed in the righteousness of Your dear Son, pleading His blood and His perfection on our behalf. Oh God, we thank You that we can live each day of each uh, each year of each, uh, all of our lives, and that we can know that we have a Savior that stands at your right hand, whom you have raised from the dead. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.